Welcome back to The Health Beat. A podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Neha Anand. And I'm Allie Burgess. In today's episode, medical student Morgan Snow talks with Dr. Casey Humbert about the ethics of telemedicine for health equity and the implications for incorporating more telemedicine into future practices. And this is especially relevant in times of COVID. Uh, Dr. Humbert has a very interesting perspective on this issue. She is the chief of foot and ankle orthopedics at the University of Pennsylvania and the founder and coordinator of the program in surgical ethics and health policy also at the University of Pennsylvania. Her academic work focuses on the intersection of ethical issues in orthopedic surgery. Yeah, that's a really interesting combo. I did not envision that I would ever be seeing post-operative patients through a screen. A lot of my patients said this was the first time they'd video conferenced on their iPhone. So they had a smartphone but hadn't used those capabilities. And so making sure they understood that you were seeing them is certainly important. And even though telemedicine has really ramped up this year, we also know a ton of people missed care. And it's heartbreaking we're seeing cancers present that would have been treatable and now aren't. We're seeing a lot of missed medical uh, diagnoses. So first, let's break down some recent headlines. According to Kaiser Health News, the rate of COVID-19 vaccinations is still lagging for Black Americans. Only 22% of Black Americans have received one dose of the vaccine compared to 33% of white Americans. And this disparity is especially concerning given that COVID-19 has had a disproportionate toll on Black Americans. Yeah, and this is definitely multifactorial. There have been targeted efforts to increase vaccination in minority groups, which has been more successful for Native Americans. 45% of Native Americans have received one dose of the vaccine. And this was fueled by CDC data that Native Americans have died of COVID at more than two times the rate of white Americans. Yeah, I'm hoping that this data on the disparity for Black Americans, you know, continues to fuel vaccination efforts for that population because it's definitely greatly needed. So another disparity related to COVID that was found recently in a study of children in Massachusetts was that multi-system inflammatory syndrome, or MSC, complication of COVID in children, impacts more children of racial minorities, specifically Black and Hispanic children, and children with lower socioeconomic status. This really isn't very much of a surprise, but to give you some more detail, more than half of MSC cases were in the lowest socioeconomic status quartile or in the highest social vulnerability index quartile. And researchers calculated that these groups had more than twice the risk of MSC compared to the general Massachusetts population. And so as vaccines have expanded now to children, I think it's really important that efforts are not only focused on vaccinating minority adults, but also minority children as well. Definitely. And there's still much work to be done to increase vaccination rates across the country, especially as more and more restrictions are being lifted. I think it was just about a week ago when we all heard the news that the CDC released new guidelines about masks that vaccinated people can pretty much return safely to most activities indoors and outdoors without wearing a mask, which was big news. This means that fully vaccinated people can resume activities without wearing a mask or physically distancing, except when required by law or businesses. Neha, where were you when you kind of first heard this and were you surprised? I first heard the news when my sister sent me Biden's announcement on Instagram. I was really surprised because, you know, it's been like a whole year of wearing masks and 
I think a lot of public health experts didn't think the mask mandate would be lifted for much longer. It's definitely a big step. Where were you, Allie? Where was I? I think I was actually coming home that day, the following day, from a night shift. And I had briefly read about it. And on my walk home, I saw a lot more people that were unmasked. So it was interesting how I was so cognizant of the fact that they were unmasked. And I was really surprised. And it just seemed like everything was happening all of a sudden. And I think that's kind of been a common theme throughout a lot of the people that I've talked to about the lifting of the guidance. Yeah, because it wasn't too long ago that they had released guidelines to lessen some restrictions, but now all restrictions are kind of lifted for vaccinated people. But if you are vaccinated, you have to still take precautions of wearing a mask and social distancing around non-household members. This guidance applies to people that are fully vaccinated. So what does this mean? This means that individuals who are two weeks following their second dose of Moderna or Pfizer, or two weeks following their first dose and only dose of Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So it doesn't mean that everyone can just stop wearing masks, regardless of their vaccination status. It must be two weeks following that final dose of the vaccine. Vaccinated people still do have to wear masks in some settings, like when traveling on planes, trains, buses, or other forms of public transportation. I just traveled recently back to Baltimore, and I still wore my mask in the airports. There were a lot of people in the airport, so I felt a lot more comfortable wearing a mask, even though I am fully vaccinated. And also, vaccinated people need to still wear masks while visiting hospitals, nursing homes, prisons, and homeless shelters. And I think that probably mask policies in hospitals will remain for a long time, even after more of the population becomes vaccinated. One draw of this new mask guidance is that behavioral scientists look at the policy as a possible incentive to encourage people to get vaccinated. And this can be seen as, you know, something that would would draw more people to actually undergo vaccination because they want to go around and not be tied down by their masks. And this is among a lot of other incentives that businesses are giving away. I was looking up the spectrum of donuts, burgers, cash and paid time off to employees and even lottery tickets. So in Ohio and Maryland, there are new lotteries for vaccinated residents that will be distributed each week in Maryland and over a five-week period in Ohio up to $1 million. Uh, This is aimed at incentivizing people to have the largest population that can be vaccinated. There have been some criticism about these new rules and especially the confusion they've caused. So we just want to emphasize that these rules apply to vaccinated people. And even Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that people may be misinterpreting the guidance as removing the mask mandate for everyone, but that's not true. It's just giving vaccinated people the assurance of their safety while indoors and outdoors. And I think another criticism is that this guidance makes it really challenging for companies and businesses that have to make their own decisions about mask wearing rules and how to best protect their employees, given that you can't tell a vaccinated person from an unvaccinated person when they're just not wearing a mask indoors. I think that's a big issue that you can't tell who's vaccinated, unvaccinated. And there's a large share of people who are still unvaccinated. Some public health experts believe that the mask mandate being lifted for vaccinated people was too early as only 38% of Americans are fully vaccinated. And as we mentioned earlier, Black Americans who are at greater risk of getting COVID are even less vaccinated, so they are even more vulnerable to these restrictions being lifted. 
Definitely. And I just started as a medical student, my pediatrics rotation. And speaking of children, it's also challenging for families to navigate new guidelines when they have small kids at home who aren't eligible for vaccines yet. And so the CDC says that all unvaccinated kids aged two years old and up should wear masks in public settings and when they're around people that don't live in their own household. I've heard anecdotally that some parents don't want to wear masks around their children to show that they're in solidarity for wearing masks with the children because otherwise, you know, children may not want to wear their masks. I think as with all things related to the pandemic, things are always changing and it can be overwhelming to keep up with the new guidance and also just feel generally comfortable returning to no masks even if you are vaccinated. So it's okay if you are fully vaccinated but still feel the need to wear a mask, uh, especially in settings where you don't know who's vaccinated and who's not. And I just want to encourage you to get your vaccine as soon as possible if you haven't already and to encourage people you know who are unvaccinated to do so as well. So a lot of change has occurred throughout this pandemic, including all of the mask mandates. And one additional piece of change is the increased use of telemedicine. So let's segue now to Morgan's conversation with Dr. Humbert to dive deeper into the ethics of expanding telemedicine practices beyond the pandemic. Thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Humbert. I am so excited to talk to you about a topic that I think every physician and and healthcare provider has encountered during the pandemic, namely telemedicine, and and really get your insights into what you think the main ethical considerations are there. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so telemedicine is something that a few years ago, I don't think many folks knew what it was, and it was kind of this thing that we were talking a lot about, how do we integrate into our practice? And now everybody knows what telemedicine is. So telemedicine is where you get some form of your healthcare remotely. It can include things such as having a translator provide telemedicine through a computer screen. When I am seeing a patient who speaks a language that I don't speak, we will often wheel in an iPad, which has a person who is conversing with us through a video chat, helping to function as an interpreter. Telemedicine also included things such as having in a rural emergency room, you might have a connection to physicians who are at a different hospital who do high-level trauma care and doing consultation. There's been remote monitoring of patients in different scenarios and assistance from super specialized physicians who can provide advice and assistance. And then, of course, when COVID happened and we realized that the risks of seeing patients in person may outweigh the benefit, we rapidly pivoted to telemedicine where we began meeting with everyone via Zoom or FaceTime or whatever video conferencing system was available. And that was a way that you could physically see your patients and check and see how they're doing. Certainly easier for some specialties than others. The classic telemedicine opportunity was psychiatry because there isn't much of a physical exam. And in fact, psychiatry had really embraced telemedicine even before COVID as a way to expand access and care. 
especially in certain kind of military systems where you had multiple VAs and could link people up who are in remote areas of the country. I have a good friend whose spouse is a, a pediatric psychiatrist and had been doing that remotely to access children who are in situations where they couldn't physically get in to the office. I think when people think of telemedicine, they don't think quite of that constellation of modalities you just talked about. So that that's really a helpful background. And I also do just want to take a, a step back and, and mention that you had written on this topic back in 2019. And if I could just briefly talk about your paper, you cited a New York Times article that told the story of a doctor informing his patient and family in a pretty abrupt manner on a television screen that the patient had an incurable disease and would soon die. And in your discussion of why this was unethical, you said, quote, the ethical error, in my view, was in the hospital ultimately choosing efficiency over compassion. But telemedicine, with its potential to revolutionize access of care, is not going away. And so we need to ask ourselves some tough questions. And wow, were you right back in 2019 (laughs) that it is not going away? So I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about your path in medicine and then specifically what got you interested in medical ethics and then being able to see the future about telemedicine. Yeah, so I will be very honest. In 2019, when I was writing this, I did not think that I was going to be someone who began to use telemedicine. So in terms of my path into the realm of medical ethics and surgery, I had always had an interest in more social science work from college forward. I was an urban studies major in addition to my biology degree, and had focused on healthcare disparities. In medical school, I had this wonderful opportunity to do a fellowship at Oxford University, and I studied bioethics there. And then as I progressed through my career and I developed really an interest around healthcare policy, I began to feel that ethics functioned upstream of it. And instead of where people argue, oh, this is the mechanism I want you to do, I became incredibly interested And what are the principles? What's the guiding reason for why we're advocating for that? What's the foundational things that I feel are the moral imperatives that we need to pursue? And I ended up deepening my involvement and work in that by getting a master's in bioethics. And I now try and not only practice ethically, but have ethical research that I do as my academic work. In terms of being prescient, I think that this is a little bit of uh, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. (laughs) I, I will be honest. I thought we were going to be moving in a direction of having telemedicine expand care to rural areas and more and more create mechanisms for highly specialized physicians to be able to treat more and more people in a broader area. I am a foot and ankle orthopedic surgeon, so that's fairly narrow within orthopedics because I learned spine, I learned peas, I learned hand, I learned sports, I learned total joints, and then I narrowed down into treating mainly foot and ankle injuries except when I'm on call when I'll take care of whatever trauma comes in. 
when you look at ophthalmology, they have a retina fellowship. I mean, you're talking about this minuscule piece of the body and we've become so hyper-specialized that that's where I thought telemedicine was going to really bloom, that it was going to be physician to physician advice where you'd get on a video screen and show someone these x-rays or this imaging study or this report and get second opinions uh, within colleagues. And it's especially tough just mechanistically with foot and ankle because although I have children who are digital natives and know how to do all the fun things on an iPhone or an iPad, my poor patients cannot figure out how to spin it around and show me their foot. So I think it's really easier if you're just chatting with someone when you're trying to go through a physical exam and let me see that wound. Okay. Is it concerning looking or is it lighting? Where do you hurt? No, where do you hurt? No, I can't see your foot. I'm seeing the ground. It's led to a lot of challenges and also I think a lot of opportunities. One thing that we are really pushing in my practice is where, where can we not bring someone in to make their life more convenient? So for example, we've decided that anyone who has kind of a straightforward ankle sprain is someone that we usually don't have to see in person after their initial visit. Once we've done the exam, once we have x-rays, once we're sure we're not missing something bad, we can then have a check-in six to eight weeks post that appointment where we touch base and say, how are you doing? And if people aren't doing well, then those are the ones that we bring back in for in-person visits to kind of look at next steps as a surgery indicated, do we need to change bracing? But since 90% of folks get better, but we don't want to assume that, we don't want to just sever care. Telemedicine has been really expanding our access to patients and helping and supporting them. And, you know, there is something super reassuring about seeing your physician at the other side of the picture but there's also something really assuring when I just pick up the phone and touch base with patients. And all of these are conversation enhancing techniques, which from an ethics perspective is autonomy enhancing, allowing people to own and understand their own bodies and their own health. Absolutely. And I think, I think that strategy makes a lot of sense. So then let me ask you, because you've talked about your practices approach to to telemedicine, and, and you've mentioned that there are certain other specialties that might lend themselves to telemedicine, like psychiatry. But also in your article, you mentioned things that can be done virtually, like mm-hmm. delivering hard news, but probably shouldn't. So yep. what are some of the other things that you think might naturally lend themselves to telemedicine? And then things that at all possible, we really need to be doing in person, not only from a logistical standpoint, but from an ethical standpoint. You know, I think we are, we are navigating those new normals. And, and I will say that perhaps the rules change during a pandemic where the risk benefit ratios get turned upside down, where that may have to be a patient by patient decision. So if I have someone who is at fairly low risk, getting super sick from COVID and I'm asking them to leave their house to come in to see me in the office, I might have one level of decision-making. But I had a patient, for example, who had horrible lungs, just horrible, and is on home oxygen. And we had done a, a reconstructive surgery and then the pandemic hit. And so every decision I'm making for a patient like that is 
if I'm going to ask them to come in to see me with a pulmonary disease like COVID, I need to make sure that I really can't be doing this with keeping them at home, even though it's more work to me and my team. And that's where we really activated a lot of visiting nursing services because you think, okay, that's one person who knows how to use personal protective equipment that I'm giving that patient exposure to, as opposed to bringing them into the office and every person they're going to encounter and the travel there, every possible exposure they have in that scenario. I think there are certain things that we should always try and do in person. And even as medicine has become quite literally less touchy-feely due to this pandemic where I never realized how many shoulders I touched and how many hands I shook and, and frankly, how many hugs I gave until I'm not supposed to do that anymore. There is something to sitting in front of someone and being able to sit there with them in silence that we can do in person that you can't do on the phone. And I know for me, I would never want to be told that I had cancer via a video screen. I would never want to get a really difficult diagnosis. For me as a surgeon, I had been messaged that someone was far away, but they needed to have a conversation about whether or not to go undergo an amputation. I said, I really have to see them in person. Not only do I want to physically lay eyes on them, see the whites of their eyes, be able to take the time to have that conversation, but I also want them to meet the orthotist and start talking about prosthetics. I want them to be able to get their lab work done. You know, there, there are certain areas that I don't think we should stretch to. And I think every specialty is going to have to navigate that on their own. There isn't a simple recipe, though, like many things in, in the ethical realm, if you just start to say, now, would I feel comfortable with this? And then on the flip side, because of course, some of us are outliers, would the average person feel comfortable with this? And if you start saying, yeah, I don't think most people would feel amazing being told they're going to die from a video screen then I think you should reconsider. I will say that we have had a lot of amazing physicians and nurses with heroic action during this crisis. But we've also had to have a lot of family members say goodbye to their loved ones via iPad held up to them by nursing. And we hadn't really thought about that as telemedicine, but of, of course it is. It's just a variety we never we never thought of because the family is part of the care team and hundreds of thousands of tragedies that we've experienced in our country and others really, I think has brought home for me how much I depend on the family to help support the patient and how much this pandemic has shifted that burden onto physicians and nurses and so many other individuals in the healthcare system who have been there to bear witness as, as people have died and holding an iPad up to them with their family. And, and I think we have perhaps shifted what is going to be considered acceptable from where I, I would have. I will be honest, I, I have had to rethink how we use it and, and trying to say, okay, what barriers are allowed and how does that change in an emergency? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I can't really imagine the challenge, you know, on top of managing patients during an emergency, then having to think of these kind of life or death ethical considerations. Yeah, no. And I say physicians and nurses, but I, I'll be honest, although it is physicians, I think a, 
the majority of this burden of the bedside care that the family would have traditionally been there with has been borne by our nurses. And it has been heroic. I think it is also going to cause a lot of moral distress. I fear for our workforce and burnout and exodus of nurses because we have asked so much of people. Absolutely. So I want to take a little bit of a step back because as as med students, we learn these ethical tenets like patient privacy and informed consent. And I'm wondering how these principles of ethics were affected during the pandemic and even just in telemedicine in general. Like, for instance, with telemedicine, a lot of the time we're being invited into the patient's home. Mm-hmm. And that's that introduces a whole other level of patient privacy considerations. So how do you navigate those kinds of things? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think when I hear privacy, I think more in terms of how do we protect the data. And so it's really interesting hearing you frame it in terms of us having a window into their home. I will tell you in, and this may seem like a sidebar, but I hope it isn't. When I was in medical school, we had a visiting doctor program. And as part of our medicine and geriatrics rotation, you had to go visit one of the geriatric practice patients in their home. And I went to visit someone who had been dealing with constipation as her major issue. And she was just a delightful person. And we got to go to her, my, my better half came with me and we visited her in her home and we do like a safety assessment. Is there a grab bar for the shower? Is it doing things of actually getting into somebody's true personal space? And of course they had to agree and we explained to them come in to do this. But then as we're walking around, I see that, that she has quite literally 20 bananas on the counter and bananas can cause constipation. And I said, how many bananas are you eating a day? She said five or six. The doctor told me to eat more fruit because of my constipation. And I said, I think we might be able to fix your constipation. That is something about this space, about being with someone where they live and exist that really changed her care. We added in some apples and other fruit and, and I went down in her life as the person who fixed her constipation, which is just the simple thing of, of course, we, when we say eat more fruit, she was doing exactly that, but that wasn't what we meant. And you had to be in her place and space to understand it. I have really loved having the window into my patient's life and it really humanizes them. And I think medicine can be dehumanizing. And instead of it being, you know, Mrs. Smith with four cats, a dog who tripped over the dog's leash and broke her ankle, it becomes the ankle fracture in bed four because of the sheer volume of what we do in medicine. And I loved that humanization. I loved getting to see families. I loved getting to see the family portraits. And for me, I actually found it really helpful in an empathic framing of how I care for my patients and what a sacred role I get that I get to go into their home even virtually. And I think that that is interesting. I also think it, it is privacy concern in terms of they need to 
understand it's going to be a video and they get to choose what they show you. We all get to curate our lives to some degree these days with what we're showing people about ourselves, whether it's what we're posting online or what we see on the video screen. But there was a consent process in place about the privacy and about the understanding about the video. And we always gave patients the option of a phone call instead. So that was part of what was put into the messaging at the institutions I've been at. So I think that's important because otherwise it almost feels like a home invasion without their consent. Now, hopefully most of us are tech savvy enough to understand this, but you know, not, not everybody is. And I, I think it was important that all the videos that I did were immediately deleted from the uh, process so that there aren't things being stored that could then create future privacy interventions. And so many privacy concerns and ethics that have originated have been that people didn't consent to that future use of things. And so I think the, the fact that it functioned like a patient encounter, when it was over, it was done and gone, was incredibly important, but they weren't recorded. Some have, have talked about doing that for liability, for different things, but I, I actually think it's important that it disappears. We haven't always been the most trustworthy with additional data as a field. And I don't think any of the benefits and so far, and I'm always open to being convinced otherwise, but that they would outweigh those concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you touched on this already a little bit, but I'm also interested in what issues does telemedicine introduce in educating patients about their care, especially with regard to what can reasonably be provided over an internet connection? Yeah. So I, I think that's a great question. And I think where I would tell folks is that I didn't feel super comfortable using it for new patient visits. And so I felt that I could use it as a screening tool to determine how worried I was about them. And there were certain things that I could find out about my level of distress. And people have sometimes uh, talked about this in terms of like in the ER physicians are actually about 80% accurate of sick, not sick, just by looking at folks. There's been studies on that. So I, I felt like I pretty good about badly enough injured I need to tell to come in versus not. But I would be honest with people, I can't examine you. So for me to figure out things on the outside of the ankle, you know, there's multiple tendons, ligaments, bones. I'd say, I think something's hurt on the outside of your ankle. Often that's a sprain but I am limited in my evaluation of you. And there is nothing that compares to a physical exam. And, and especially in orthopedics, which is so hands-on. I mean, we are glorified carpenters. We use plates and screws to put people back together, but we also will push bones and joints back into place. We will manually do these things. And I am so used to taking a foot and examining it examining where they hurt, really pushing on it with your thumbs and fingers is an incredibly effective way to get to a diagnosis. And I've always loved that about my field, that even without x-ray, I felt like I can go and go on a medical service trip with a very deformed ankle and be able to know with pretty good reliability what that x-ray is going to look like. Telemedicine took that away. So I know that I was not as good a doctor for initial evaluation. On the flip side, 
I think that if I'm doing something like an MRI review and I've already gotten a good physical exam and we're just having a conversation where I'm putting up imaging and walking through it, I actually may be better at that in its own way because we had the share screen and I could go through it more slowly and methodically and the telemedicine visits were scheduled longer. So I had more time to kind of work through and show them all the different views. And it was easier because we weren't sitting across from each other in the room. Like they were seeing the exact same image I was depending on the size of their screen. So there were, there were some upsides too. And to your point about some things being better, what do you consider being the number one or two top benefits of this kind of new era of telemedicine? I think the convenience can't be overstated. It's really inconvenient to go to the doctor and have to sit and wait. And when we have care that can meet people where they are, it has such a tremendous benefit. We're in a mental health crisis as a country right now. And the access to mental health professionals via video, which is just more intimate than on the phone, I think is going to prove to be revolutionary in how we provide care and when we provide care. There may be mental health professionals who want to work from 8 p.m. till 1 a.m. when their kids are in bed. Telemedicine is going to make that possible. Depending on regulations, which is not an area of my particular expertise, but if we were to get federal regulations permitting across state care, you can imagine being a physician in New York taking care of people in California. Right now, that's incredibly tricky. But there are now national policy level discussions about how do we do that because telemedicine has changed things. Though that, I also think that presents some risk. There is importance about proximity, especially when you talk about mental health. If someone is in a state of potential self-harm, proximity matters, right? Being able to call and get help to them urgently matters. So it's not a panacea. Everything has its, its other side. Absolutely. And you've just opened up my next question nicely. So thank you. And even in, in your article, you, you talked about how telemedicine would revolutionize access to care, especially for rural communities. And so how do you think issues of equity and access come into play? I think telemedicine is going to exacerbate existing disparities. I'd like to be more optimistic. And people have said, yeah, everybody has a smartphone. So now everybody has access to telemedicine. As someone who was late getting out of the house today, so I started out a Zoom meeting on my cellular network rather than a Wi-Fi network. I can tell you it's not the same. And I think we all know that when we've jumped between. So I think those who are wealthier, more educated are going to be better able to navigate telemedicine. Just like I have, while others have, have found it heartwarming how there's these stories in the newspaper about these young kids getting all the older adults, their COVID shots, and helping them navigate kind of the craziness of scheduling. And I, I saw it in my own family as my better half scheduled his aunt for her COVID vaccine, but she doesn't have internet. And 
instead of being heartwarming, I, I found it mildly terrifying <laughs> because we're, we're eliminating an entire group of people from access to care. So even in areas where telemedicine can be very effective, we need to be very careful about how we apply it so that we're not just worsening access for everybody else because we only have so many physicians. We only have so many nurses. We only have so many people. When you reroute me to a day of telemedicine, you're rerouting me away from a day of seeing patients in the office or operating in the operating room. Time is a finite resource. And those are broad concerns, but I, I wish that I could believe that the smartphones were at the degree that we are access expanding for everyone. I'm not sure that it's a rising tide lifting all the boats. I think there are some boats still stuck on shore. Yes. And those are the people who least should be stuck on the shore. Yes. Yes. I think we take for granted everyone having a stable Wi-Fi connection. Even I, I mean, it's a silly story, but we are, we are currently selling a house. And so in COVID, I had to run out of the house to have a showing. And I had called a local coffee shop that in general has good Wi-Fi. I confirmed with them that they had Wi-Fi. I ran in, I grabbed a coffee, I sat at the table outside, and there was no signal. And it was me and two lovely baristas rapidly working to try and restore their Wi-Fi connection so I could get on for a patient care-related call because I wasn't currently at my house. And it really solidified for me, these are the challenges. And we've all read the stories about students without home Wi-Fi sitting in McDonald's parking lots in different places, trying to catch a signal to be able to log into school. Internet equity access. I am positive maps very closely onto healthcare equity access. They're, they are interchangeable to some degree. It's always the same communities that have left. So then keeping that in mind and keeping in mind that you have a good track record of predicting the future here, (laughs) what do you, what do you see as being the long-term implications of this expansion of telemedicine that we've seen? And, And do you think this expansion will persist? I think the expansion will persist. I think it'll swing back from the extreme it was at maybe a year ago. And where I anticipate us being able to really maximize it is in things that are going to enhance patient safety and quality in terms of follow-up care after discharge or follow-up care after being seen. I don't think it's going to replace the hands-on acute care, but for example, they're trialing different programs of hip or knee replacement telemedicine rehab. Instead of having to get yourself to a physical therapist, you're doing that remotely. Check-ins to make sure that you're taking your medications and medication adherence. Where we're able to having folks communicate to do some of kind of routine visiting nurse things. Are you taking the medicine? Show me the medicine boxes. And you can, you start getting really clever. You can start imagining that there's a time that you send somebody home with some sort of video linkage device that has medication dispensing with it that you can then if they don't take it, the pills come out automatically. And if they don't take it, someone starts phoning in, Mr. Smith, time for your Coumadin. And I think there are real opportunities for it to expand people's ability to stay and live at home um, for longer periods of time. Although it's tangential to this conversation, 
however much one may have not wished to end up in a nursing home before this pandemic, given the impacts on our long-term care facilities in this pandemic, I think more and more people, and I have certainly heard it from patients, from family members of, I will never end up in one of those places. And one can imagine transitions of care that involve more remote monitoring and use of new versions of telemedicine, much of it probably not done by physicians, much of it done by different members of our care team who are able to provide remote monitoring and care similar to that which we would have traditionally had in a nursing home but allows aging in place. So if you want me to try and predict, that's where I would go. I would, I would say that I bet it changes. I, I bet the twin things that come out of this pandemic really impact that in 30 years, we have far fewer nursing homes with just as many of the aged population as we expected. And I think wearable devices will play into that. So I've purchased someone an Apple watch so that I'll know if they fall. I have that setting on them. And that came because we we're playing with a family member, that person slipped and fell, they were fine. The watch said, it seems that you've fallen, would you like me to call 911? And that their setting is that if they don't respond, it will call 911. Those sorts of wearables linked into telemedicine and healthcare resources really change the care dynamic. Well, I'm going to put put my money on that prediction. <laughs> Buy it. Even a stop clock is right twice a day. May I remind you? <laughs> no, no, I buy it. Um, so then looking, looking towards that future, what, what advice do you have for medical students or future healthcare providers in being skillful and ethical practitioners of telemedicine? I don't think your generation, and now I'm going to be the old person who says your generation, is going to have any issues with telemedicine. You guys are so much more adept with all of the technology that that's going to be easy. What I worry about is losing that physical exam and that we revert to an era of everyone just gets an MRI because I can review an MRI with someone and no one gets the hands-on. And for me, I decide when to do surgery based on physical exam, because you can have an MRI. In fact, I, ha I had one of those reminders today of someone whose x-ray findings had no relationship to their symptoms and horrible arthritis in one joint. Oh, that doesn't hurt at all. I'm here for this. And I'm like, well, it looks normal. That's what you need the physical exam for. But if we head into a pure technology realm, the robots, I don't think, can do the physical exam. And maybe they can, but not yet. And, and that is what you need evaluating joint stability. And so I fear, and what I would caution you and your colleagues and, and the next generation coming up, is to make sure that you don't lose the bedside skills and that we don't let ourselves be convinced by any company who, of course, stand to make a profit that all you need is enough imaging and enough tests, and then the algorithm will tell you what's wrong. That's not to, to say that I'm someone who must be stone age and not using the technology, but simply that's going to be more expensive 
if you have to get an MRI or a CT or, or some sort of advanced imaging on every patient because we're not laying hands on them, we're going to lose the real essence of medicine. And we will order a lot of unnecessary imaging and keep driving the cost of healthcare up and learning the appropriate application of the advanced test is always going to be the issue. But anything that you can now look at on a computer screen is now accessible via telemedicine. So there's going to be a huge drive to get more of that, to make it easy. And so I think being, being wary that I, I have always relished that I have a job I can't do at home. And I have a lot of friends who've been working from home for a, for a year who, who envy the fact that I go out and my life hasn't changed that much other than I wear a mask all day. And half my days, I already was wearing a mask all day because I was in the operating room. But there is a loveliness to staying home. You don't have the commute. You don't have the drive. There's the convenience. And I think there's going to be a real push of how much of this can we do this way because it is easier on us lifestyle-wise and pushing back and saying, no, we'll, we'll convert what we can convert but let's not go too far down this road out of convenience for ourselves because we're going to miss a whole bunch of patients. We're going to miss a whole bunch of diagnoses and we're going to drive up the cost of healthcare out of convenience rather than quality. Yes. And I can tell you as a first year medical student who has mostly learned the physical exam over zoom, it's <laughs> <laughs> insufficient. It is insufficient. And, and in fact, there's really good evidence that your amount of time and experience predicts your use or overuse of advanced imaging, at least in the musculoskeletal realm. I'm very slow to get advanced imaging. I hate when folks order it to try and figure out what's going wrong. Like, why didn't they examine you? And the reason they didn't is because they don't know how. But an office visit will probably always be cheaper than an MRI. And also more effective usually because you get initiated in a treatment plan. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but what's the one thing that you would like patients to take away from this discussion and know about their virtual care? I would want them to know that they are still able to access all of my brain power, whatever it's worth directed in towards them, but there are clear limits to it. And that we have to acknowledge those limits and be honest about what we can and can't do through it. So I think when it's at the point of relationship where we need to have a conversation, I'm just as good with telemedicine. I have somebody presenting with a dislocated ankle via telemedicine. That is a disservice to a patient. There are things that I have to be in person to be able to do. So I think uh, recognize that even on the patient end, even though it's super convenient, when I'm asking someone to come in to see me in person, it is because, and I may be wrong, but it's because I am believing that is in their medical best interest, which is an ethical concept. You know, I'm trying to support the patient's best interest, the principle of beneficence. I'm trying to promote their good and saying, essentially, I recognize it's inconvenient to have to get off your couch, come in, drive in, park. And in this current moment, some level of risk of COVID by seeing other people. But I think that's the only way I can give you the care that you deserve. 
And I would um, say in terms of my personal take-home points regarding this, it's that don't ever compromise what you think is the right thing to do to your convenience or even sometimes your patient's convenience because one can very easily imagine someone calling in and saying, I have a little bit of pain behind my knee, but it's not that bad, and us missing a blood clot things that you wouldn't miss on a physical exam where you squeeze and say, oh boy, we got to get an ultrasound. I think you have a deep vein thrombosis, a big clot behind your knee that can travel to your lungs and be dangerous. And even though telemedicine has really ramped up this year, we also know a ton of people missed care and it's heartbreaking. We're seeing cancers present that would have been treatable and now aren't. We're seeing a lot of missed medical uh, diagnoses. And so acknowledging the the limits of any new technology. So I think of telemedicine as a tool, but it is just that. It's a tool with its own limits and its own issues. And it can't substitute for a a patient-physician interaction. And I will be honest, though, I get such joy seeing my patients in person that I have to use that as my disclosure, that it may be self-interested that I focus on the limits of telemedicine because I don't get nearly the same amount of joy out of this job doing it in front of a computer screen as I do doing it in person. So there's my, or I'm supposed to give our disclosures in medical talks. There's my disclosure that I love seeing folks in person. Well, Dr. Humbert, this has been fascinating. So much to consider on this topic. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Oh, no, I'm just, I'm sitting here heartbroken thinking about doing my first year of medical school virtually because it was such fun, but it was also so hands-on and, you know, the, the joy of the physical exam that you're doing something that people have been using as a mechanism to care for others over often millennia, even if we were getting it wrong and we still may be getting it wrong. I, I'm now just going to think about how do I help support my med students when they're rotating with me in a year or two who didn't get that. And we got to just do tons of physical exam. That's my hope. I think we'll come in a little bit behind, but I'm hoping to more than make up for it next year. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. I so enjoyed being uh, had on your show and thank you so much for inviting me. This was great. If you've made it this far, you must be really interested in current health news topics. Follow us on COVID Up to Date for news headlines related to the pandemic, and make sure to subscribe to The Health Beat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a great review and let us know what topics you want covered in the future. See you next time.